Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show. Monday, March the 8th is the day. Today's the day we get to the bottom of NFTs. You might be aware of them and unsure of them. We will clear up all of your questions coming up with our tech expert, Carmi Levy. And we'll be joined by bioethicist Carrie Bowman to talk about the ins and outs of vaccine passports ethically since the feds have started to discuss them with other G7 countries. But first, uh, there's a memo that went out uh, from the Ontario government that's hinting at possible teacher education worker layoffs, uh, which is uh, concerning, especially since we are looking at a possible third wave here in Ontario. Uh, here to talk about it, Liz Stewart, president of the Ontario English Catholic Teachers Association. Liz, thanks for joining us. I wonder if you can give us some perspective on what was in the memo. Uh, good morning, Kelly. Um, basically, what the memo talked about was um, that the funding that boards received this year to assist them with the pandemic was one-time funding. Um, so not to expect it, in a nutshell, not to expect that come September, which you know lends itself to the question, well, does the ministry know that we won't need it in September, in which case they should probably share that information with everybody? Or, um, you know, are they planning on pulling support that, you know, frankly, I mean, I'll tell you, I, come September, I am going to be back in the classroom, right? My time as president here will be, as the elector will be over, and I will be heading back into the classroom. And as I start to think about what my classroom will look like in September, nowhere in my thoughts am I thinking it's going to look like it did before I took on this role, right? Like, I fully understand that. You know, as much as I may hope that there are still going to be concerns and we are still going to have to have safety measures in place. And I just don't understand why the ministry would do this and why they wouldn't at the very least. I mean, I found out the same way everybody else did because I read it on Twitter, right? Mm. Or I saw it in the media, not because the ministry actually held a conversation with, with all of the stakeholders, with all of the partners. Yeah, apparently, according to this this memo dated February 26th, the deputy education minister uh, told teachers unions and other education groups, school boards are being told not to count on the $1.6 billion one-time funding for COVID-19 support. And that funding allowed for the hiring of uh, principals, extra teachers, educational assistants, mental health workers, early childhood educa- educators, uh, custodians at schools across the province. So, um how, if at all, would they fund moving forward those extra people? Well, the bottom line is school boards can't if they don't have the funding. There's no way they can do it. I mean, it is interesting because we did see on the memo they said it was it was CC'd to us as well. Um, and it actually wasn't, right? We didn't get this until it was already out in the media and we asked for it, which was several days later. So there's been no conversation with us. There's been no discussion about which, you know, to to me, it's like Groundhog Day. This is exactly what happened almost a year ago when we started on this path. And we said, bring us in. Let us be part of the conversation. Let's really talk about what can we do? How can we do things? How can we make sure that we're keeping everybody safe and keeping schools open? Because we understand how critical that is. So we've been asking for this for over 12 months, right? Like make us part of the conversation. And yet again, 
this government just completely ignores us and then turns around and says we're being obstructionist. Well, mm. I, I can't be obstructionist if I'm not actually part of the conversation. Liz, <laughs> like, let me ask you this. What does this say about Doug Ford's uh, confidence that Justin Trudeau's right, that everyone that wants a vaccine will be vaccinated by the end of September? I mean, from like, do you think that has anything to do with the timing? But I think, well, potentially, but um, I, I rather think it's more about the ministry just giving boards the heads up because now is a critical time in school board calendars, like every year. Why? Uh, this is a time when they start looking at what happens next year, right? Mm. Because, you know, school boards are, are large organizations. Um, it's never easy to do staffing because it's always based on your population, your school population, and it's based upon the needs right within the school. So what programs need to be in place? School boards really need to know from the government what what their funding is going to look like because that is how they base decisions for the coming school year, which, as I say, are being made right now, really, in most boards. They're already in the midst of, of staffing for next year, looking at you know how they're going to structure the schools. So this is a critical time for school boards. And is there a so, threat? You know, is there a threat, Liz, if they say, okay, uh, school board says, okay, well, I'm going to have to cut teachers that were hired uh, for online learning. We're going to cut you because apparently we're all going to be back in the class on in September. I'm giving a hypothetical here. Uh, according to this memo, we've got to save some money, so we're going to cut the teachers that did the online uh, learning alone. Um, what happens if, if I had Dr. Carrie Bowman on talking about how these inoculation passports, how if all of us are vaccinated, maybe we still we still could get a bit sick from COVID-19. There's no it doesn't say that you're not going to catch COVID-19. What if we have to actually go back to online learning? What happens then in that situation if the teachers aren't there? Is there a threat that they won't be there? Well, I mean, at this point in time, school boards are, are looking at making decisions around now, what do they do? Right. So what programs do they have to eliminate? And it's not just about, you know, teachers in classrooms. It's about, you know, the additional cleaning staff that we've had in place, you know, mm. our custodial workers. It's about um, additional education assistance. It's about the public health nurses. But I mean, quite frankly, um, I, I've yet to meet a teacher who's met one, but you know, that are supposed to be in place in assisting school boards. But all of these pieces are all part of that funding where we say, well, where will all those supports be? We're about to head into a school year, unlike pretty much any other, even the one we've just been through, because even if we are all back in school, we are going to be receiving students back into classrooms who some of them will have been out for a whole year because parents will have chosen online learning and now because of vaccination will say, okay, I'm, I'm going to allow my student, my child to go to school now. But there are impacts to student learning that we're, we're going to need to make sure we can bridge and put in place. Good and point. there's also going to be impacts to mental health, mm-hmm. frankly, for everybody. And, and the only way to deal with that is to make sure we have the resources in place so we can so that if there are special programs that need to be in place, that we can put those in place. Because if there's one thing this pandemic has drawn into sharp relief, it's it's the inequities within the system. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, we really need to focus on that as we, we enter into the new school year and make sure we can put the proper supports in place. The students are going to need them. Teachers are going to need them, quite frankly, more than ever before. Liz, before I let you go, it's International Women's Day. I should have started with Happy International Women's Day to you. Um, and a group of uh, all of the Ontario um, teachers unions are calling for the provincial government to offer free menstrual products in all publicly funded schools. I, I mean, I kind of giggled when I said that because I can't believe it's just not already done. Yeah, you and me both. I mean, this is something that we've been advocating for for quite some time, uh, both here in Ontario and frankly, all across Canada. Um, because, you know, period poverty is a very real thing. Um, and, you know, we, we see it every day in our school. Um, and what happens is, you know, usually it's staff within schools who are making donations to try and fill those gaps and assist students. And, you know, I think it's critically important and it is way past time mm-hmm. um, that that was actually happening. What are the odds of Stephen uh, Lecce announcing that this is a, this will happen? Well, you know, I, I won't be holding my breath. I, I truly hope he does, um, because I think it would be I think it would be a great signal, especially to to all women, right? But certainly to to our young girls out there who are feeling um, somewhat abandoned. I think, right? Liz- because on top of the pandemic, you know, they also have to deal with that. Yeah, that's for sure. Liz, I think we've all, we can all relate to that. I, I appreciate your time today and thank you so much. We've got a break here for the news with Dave Bradley, but thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Kelly. You take care. Have a great day. Toronto is considering 24 hour vaccination clinics. I love the idea. I think it's good. Get the vaccines in the arms. Durham is starting vaccination uh, registration for 80 and up today. North York found room for 3,000 more vaccinations in the age category this week. And according to our federal health minister, Patty Hageu, uh, she is having discussions with some of the other G7 countries about the uh, idea of, that they're floating around vaccine passports. Other nations and industry groups are looking into the kind, you know, what kind of evidence or documentation that should be requested in order to travel internationally. And she said, we'll be coming back to Canadians as we understand more about the intentions of our counterparts. Um, I think if our counterparts are questioning whether we're, they're going to go ahead and do those uh, vaccine passports, it is a very high, um, I, it's very likely that we will have to adopt some sort of vaccine passport. I guess the question is the ethics of one. University of Toronto's bioethicist Carrie Bowman joins the show. Carrie, it's always a pleasure having you on. Happy to do so. So is this inevitable? Do you think we're going to all, after we get vaccinated, it, whether it be hard copy or probably more, you know, because technology, a digital mm-hmm. copy, be carrying around these vaccine passports? You know, in my opinion, I, I think it is. And, and you know, there is precedent, there is history for this already. Remember that, you know, not everyone may be familiar with this, but the yellow cards, certainly I work globally and those crazy yellow cards that you need to get into so many countries uh, showing what you have been vaccinated for, things like yellow fever, et cetera. You know, there's a lot of fraud, there's a lot of tension, there's a lot of bribes, there's all kinds of crazy things. But those actually go right back from the World Health Organization to 1933. So there is precedent for this. I'm not saying it's it's a no-brainer. It's not. It's actually very complex stuff. And I think what Canada's maybe struggling with now is that if different countries do different things and we have 
all kinds of different electronic passports out there, it's going to be very confusing and difficult mm. for travel. So you think this is less about should we, and it's more about how do we for some sort of standardization of Yeah, the well, let's clarify this should. So if we're talking international international travel, I think it's virtually inevitable that this mm-hmm. is going to occur. Now, that's very different than if we're talking about vaccine passports within Canada, when you want to go out for dinner on a Friday night in the months ahead. Those are kind of two different things. And we're not sure, you know, it looks like for international travel, it will likely be inevitable. And that's still very problematic ethically. I mean, who can travel, who not? Whenever you get different tiers of people, these people have access, these don't, um, you Mm -hmm. run the risk of all kinds of ethical problems. And, you know, who's going to be able to do it? we will see. The other thing that really confuses me, Kelly, is, is yeah. right now people are being vaccinated quite frequently. And there doesn't seem to be, from what I've talked to them about, I haven't been vaccinated, but, but there's no digital uh, you know, certificate or component or anything yet. So they're going to have to do it retroactively somehow. Uh, nightmare situation to me. Yeah. When you bring that up, all I think is the government in charge of standardizing things and doing it on oh, the back I know, end I know. in reverse. Oh, come on. I mean, I, this is what drives yeah. me crazy about this, Carrie, and the whole vaccination program. We've been talking about vaccines since probably uh, March last year when this thing broke, when we're like, okay, it's oh, not going to end till there's have. a vaccine, right? So you would think yeah. that they would w- already, right away, that you're, you, you realize that's the end goal. Let's get people set up with how we achieve that end goal and what we need to do to get to that end goal. You're working on this. You're working on this. You're working on this. And it seems like nobody was working on anything. I mean, it's, it's mind boggling. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. And, you know, and it's here. It's here. I mean, the vaccine, you're, 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 you know, as you've said earlier in, in, in your program, you know, Toronto, for example, is talking about 24 hour clinics. I mean, it's here and supply is here. So we will see. I think these things will happen quickly. Um, our government, the Liberal Party of Canada, has made it clear they're not interested in, in vaccine passports per se. And look, let's back up a little bit. Mm-hmm. What about the science? Unless I'm missing something, we still do not definitively know that vaccinated people are not infectious. We don't. Right. It seems to be a growing assumption, but assumptions are not scientifically grounded. So you know, we still are not crystal clear on the science behind this, but it's not stopping a lot of countries. You know, Israel's moving forward with their green card or green, not certain if it's called green card or green pass, something of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the European Union is very interested in these types of things. I think it's upon us. The great question is, is will this sort of be the slow drift? Will we start with international travel and then will it drift into when you want to go out on a Friday night? You've got to have this and that and all those types of things. Uh, we will see. But look, let me just say this. Another element of this is, you know, it could be considered as much as it's ethically problematic to have passports, could be ethically problematic to not have them. And what I mean by that is if there's growing amounts of Canadians that have played by the rules for an entire year, and let's imagine that we know that they don't have an infectious risk, there are no risk to anyone else or minimal risk, is it really fair to hold all those people back while we wait for herd immunity or whatever it may be. That's the other side of the ethical question. Mm. Can I just hit towards the uh, yellow cards? I remember the yellow cards because I went to Africa in uh, 2004 and we still had yellow cards. 
Mm -hmm. the They're still now. I, I'm working in Africa, and yeah, I've still got my yellow yeah. card. <laughs> so, um, where? I mean, to me, the, you know, if we're talking about a vaccination passport, this is just an extension of that. So, correct? Uh, how how are we looking at this as an ethical concern again? Because I would, I can well, see how it would be a an uh, ethical concern, I guess, that you couldn't travel if you, yeah. you know, can't get vaccinated. But in, in sure. that case, that yeah. would sort of negate you from going to Africa. Maybe. But, you know, there, there's people that can't travel. So so first of all, people under 18. What if you've got three kids mm -hmm. and they're all under 18? What do you do about that? Right. And what if travel means just going to the It's going to be States a good trip, Carrie. <laughs> That's know. what you do about that. <laughs> Mommy and daddy are going away on an adult trip. I know. And they, and you have a perfect reason to leave them behind. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, there, there's all of those things. And, there, you know, as you said, there's people that cannot be vaccinated. And look, we could roll our eyes all we want. There's yeah. people that choose not to be vaccinated, but they have a right. It's their body. It's their mm -hmm. choice. Is it really fair that they get completely left behind on all these advantages? Um, so there are ethical questions. Now, the good news in Canada is we focused an awful lot on vulnerability to our credit and vaccines are free. Mind you, I'm not hearing anyone in the whole world that's charging for vaccines, but mm -hmm. maybe they are. I don't know. But but so, you know, we are reaching out to, to more vulnerable people, but you are creating a have and a have not. There's also a surveillance element to this. Um, you know, there's always surveillance if you're traveling. It's pretty clear you're entering and exiting countries on this. Sure, you've got that a passport. That, that's, and that's fine. That's fine. But but, you know, if, if it extends into to get into this restaurant, this bar, this sports mm -hmm. event, you have to flash this. And what data electronically will be collected and what mm -hmm. movements will be collected with people. And people in a mature democratic society have a right to freedom of movement and they have a right to privacy. And so there's risks to both those things with this. Yeah, well, you, you do a great job of illustrating what the risks are and where the ethical concern is. And I, I hopefully, uh, I think you've got everybody up to speed today. I really appreciate your time as always, Carrie. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I'm happy to do so. Take care. Cheers. Let's talk about something. Is this a novelty or is it here to stay? Uh, speaking of it, it, you may have seen headlines surrounding something called NFTs. It's not something dirty. It's the non-fungible token. And you might be thinking to yourself, what is a non-fungible token? And why is it such a big deal? And why don't I know what's happening? Uh, but you're too nervous to ask or you're too busy to ask. Carmi Levy joins us right now. He's a tech expert and he knows everything about this. He's the director at InfoTech Research Group. Carmi, it's good to have you on. I have been saying to Chris for the past week or so, you know, I keep seeing headlines of Grimes making money off NFTs. Uh, Kings of Leon now made some money. Uh, there was a Jack Dorsey's first tweet uh, is is an NFT now, and I thought I I gotta get somebody on that can talk about these because I I don't want myself and people that listen to the show left in the dark if someone starts talking about NFTs. What is an NFT? Well, basically, anyone who's ever collected uh, baseball cards, hockey cards, anything collectible art, uh, this is the digital equivalent of something that is collectible. That is it. That's all an NFT is the fancy word for digital collectible. And really what it does is it allows us, so for example, if I want to go back and see Jack Dorsey's first tweet from 14 years ago, I can easily do that. I can go back and I can get a screen grab of it and I can save it to my hard drive and then I can share it and I don't have to pay anything, it doesn't cost me anything, uh, I, whatever, it's just, it's all out there. Mm -hmm. um, what this, but the thing is, it's like a copy. It's like I've had, if I went to a museum, took a picture of the Mona Lisa and saved it on my camera and then showed it to other people, 
they would go, well, yeah, that's a picture of the Mona Lisa. It's not the actual original work. And that's what an NFT is. It's an original digital version of something that's signed by the artist or the original owner. So there's, there can only be one NFT version of Jack Dorsey's original tweet with his digital signature on it that is verifiable that I can say, I got it right from the guy himself. It's the original one, the one that should be behind glass. And I'll, I'm happy to sell it to you for two and a half million dollars. That's the difference between an NFT and anything else is that an NFT is the actual original, like the work of art behind glass in a museum. And, and thanks to new technologies like blockchain, it is now, there's a market for it. If you're a digital artist, you can sell digital originals of your work and hopefully make some money in the process. Okay, Carmi, here's what I'm thinking, and I can't be the only one thinking this, but a picture of the Mona Lisa, let's take the Mona Lisa out of it, because I actually think that it's not a very good piece of artwork. I've seen it, and I was like, yeah, oh my not. God, eh. <laughs> uh, let's take um, Van Gogh's Starry Night or or Picasso's Guernica. You can take a picture of both of those artworks, but until you're standing in front of it, you don't really get it. But um, a digital, having the digital print of the digital isn't it the same thing? Like, isn't it exactly the same? So it doesn't really hold up the way art does because it it's not a different experience. Whether you're looking at the original or a copy of the digital, it's still a digital. Or am I wrong? You're right. And my, no, no, you're, you're right. And my first inclination when NFTs really started to become a thing was that, you know, P.T. Barnum, there's a sucker born every minute. You know, you're, you're convincing people that this thing has intrinsic worth and it really doesn't. And there's a certain truth to that. You know, at a certain end of the market, let's face it, the, the first digital version of a, of a Blue Jays poster really doesn't have a whole lot of value to people. And so the market will determine if it's worth $5 or if it's worth $5 million. Uh, really what this is, is a platform that allows people to test that out. So mm -hmm. there will be suckers. Uh, there will be suckers who overpay for something that really isn't that special. Uh, and there will be other assets that, you know, probably maybe are worth something, right? You know, imagine if we could go back to, you know, uh, a major event in history, the person who took the, the photo of the Challenger exploding, the actual original footage that no one else has, that might have intrinsic value. And so it's not for us to decide what is and is not worth it. What is exciting here is that there is now finally a playground where digital artists, which we've never had before, can have the same crack at creating a career selling their work that traditional artists have had in the past. And then we'll see where it goes from there. Yeah, I understand that whole digital uh, artist being able to prove the provenance of something, um, you know, that this is a kind of a digital provenance that you're doing. But back to the uh, Challenger mm -hmm. explosion, which is a really odd choice that you'd bring up because you get picked <laughs> anything. Um, yeah. So um, back to... Um, I'm trying to pick something more positive, uh, like uh, <laughs> someone crossing a finish line at, at a major race. Let's go Usain Bolt uh, crossing the finish line, uh, you mm -hmm. know, in that hundred meter race. If if I own that, I can see the the value on if someone wants to use it again, if they have to pay me to use it. Would we see these mm -hmm. non non fungible tokens being used that way? Could you make money of it like a, a copyright? You certainly could. And in fact, if you're if you're the photographer standing right near the finish line and you're the one who takes that photo among how many other cameras that are there, of course, uh, you know, you have the option of selling the one original digital version for however much money, because that's the piece of history. Right. And then you can also sell it just like an artist. They, they'll sell the original, 
but then they can also sell signed prints that are also verifiable. So, you know, you can sell one for a million dollars and then you can sell, I don't know, a few others that are also verifiable for $10,000. You can create a market for yourself. And, and this kind of corrects the last 15, 20, 30 years of digital reality where if you took a digital photo or, or a digital artifact and then it got out there, it kind of became hard to make money off of it because everybody had a copy of it and there's no way to verify that something was legit, that something was original, that something was tied to the original creator. So what this does is it pulls power back from the internet where people are just copying everything and not paying for it to uh, an environment where at least people have a fighting chance of, of, of deriving some value out of something that they've created. And NFTs allow them different levels of revenue to do that. And of course, the market will decide what's worth what, uh, but at least now there's a possibility of there being buyers, sellers, and money exchanging hands. How much legitimacy does Elon Musk's girlfriend or a partner rather, Grimes, lend to NFTs when she just recently made millions off selling this, you know, digital uh, music project uh, along with a film project that she put together. They're kind of like shorts. Uh, how much does that credibility does that lend? I think it's huge. You know, we've seen so many examples of celebrities, major names, uh, you know, getting involved in something and suddenly that becomes the reason that the rest of us pay attention to it. So this isn't just, you know, we, we've been hearing about cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Ethereum, we've been hearing about blockchain for years, but many of us have stood off to the sidelines because we're afraid. We don't want to be scammed. We don't, we don't know anyone else who's participating. We don't really know who to trust uh, or, you know, who's saying the truth and who isn't. So when a major uh, uh, a celebrity like Grimes, who has that obviously close connection to Elon Musk, steps in when Jack Dorsey steps in, when the Kings of Leon put their money where their mouth is and they actually also get involved. Suddenly it's like, oh, well, if it's good enough for the celebrities, then maybe I should finally pay attention to it. It's worth it. It isn't the scam that I thought it was. And so, you know, this mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a major inflection point. We're not quite there yet, but it's another step toward all of this technology becoming something that you and I think as normal, not just something that would exist on the dark web, you know, among hackers and scammers. I was really transfixed with the term non-fungible of the uh, non-fungible mm -hmm. uh, token. It's it, Apparently, it simply means that they can't be exchanged for another asset of the same type. They can instead only be transferred in exchange uh, for some sort of money, typically uh, Bitcoin or something like that. Exactly. You know, and that's the so it, what it does is it reinforces exclusivity. It means that it's harder to transfer. In other words, if I'm spending two and a half million dollars on Jack Dorsey's original tweet and that is verifiable on on the blockchain, people can look it up online and say, yeah, that's that's the actual one that I can't just take that thing, walk into a into a Ferrari dealership and say, I want to I, here's here's Jack Dorsey's tweet. It's worth two and a half million dollars. Please give me that two and a half million dollar car over there in exchange for this. It's not currency. Um, so it's not fluid. You can't move it back and forth. That reinforces the, the exclusivity of it. It's the same thing with art. You know, we've had this for so long. You buy that painting for $10 million. You're not going to be throwing it in a backpack and walking around going on shopping sprees with it. That's mm -hmm. really all it means. It's just it's not easily liquid. Just to put some perspective on how uh, non-fungible tokens are selling, how how uh, quickly they're selling here and how big of a headline this is becoming, OpenSea, the largest marketplace for buying and selling NFTs, booked almost $90 million US 
worth of uh, transactions last month. That is up $8 million from the month before and just $1.5 million from the same time last year. So this is a niche market, but it is for either the very foolhardy or extremely rich. You know, it's. I, I wish I had been alive in the 1600s when tulips were a thing. And this is very much like that, where suddenly everybody wants to get in the market because they see an opportunity to make huge amounts of money. What's likely going to happen at some point is there will be a reckoning. In other words, those who got in uh, for speculative reasons are probably going to get burned in some way. Um, but what's going to be left behind is a foundation of technology that uses something, what we call blockchain, which is a publicly available, think of it as like a spreadsheet or a ledger mm -hmm. that anyone can look up. And anytime someone buys or sells something, it goes into that that blockchain, that ledger. Uh, and so whether whether or not people get scammed here or not, and whether this bubble bursts over the next little while, what matters here is that we are legitimizing the technology right. blockchain specifically for other things so that the economy in, in a broader sense will benefit from it. So I honestly don't really care how much Jack Dorsey or Grimes sell their latest digital work for. What matters to me is we're going to end up with better technologies across the economy because of what we're seeing now. Interesting. Carmi, thanks so much for joining us. I, I think uh, it's an important conversation to have just to be aware of what exactly we're talking about when there's a new technology or something new sweeping the Internet that, you know, m many of us look at and think, I, I don't get what that's all about. But really, if this is about the possibility of legitimizing blockchain um, and uh, cryptocurrency even more than it is, then that's a big deal. we got to keep our eye on this. Awesome. Really glad I had a chance to chat about it with you. Thank Kelly. you Thanks very so much. much for having me. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Always a pleasure having you along. Hey, click subscribe wherever you download your favorite podcast and we'll be waiting for you daily. Have a good one.